You're listening to Earth Matters, produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the Kulin Nation and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We're bringing you environmental and social justice stories. I'm Corey Green. Well, it comes down to this. There will be no international agreements for the environment that will ever be binding unless we have peace. On today's show, we're looking at the recent cases that were held in the Northern Territory Supreme Court prosecuting peace activists who walked onto the secretive Pine Gap military base. We will be discussing why environmentalists should care about Pine Gap and about peace issues. Pine Gap is a military base 18 kilometres southwest of Alice Springs. It was started by the United States military, but Australia now has staff, some decision-making power, and Australia receives intelligence reports. Pine Gap is used to intercept and record both military and civilian communications and provides essential intelligence for drone strikes, especially over the Middle East. It would be an essential part of any nuclear strikes that the United States wish to run. Throughout the show, we will be talking to a number of experienced peace activists who were present at the trial. Defendant Margaret Pistorius, former Senator Scott Ludlam, academic Richard Tanter, and longtime activists Graham Dunstan and Felicity Ruby. We start with Margaret, who will tell us about the case. Hi, I'm Margaret Pistorius. I'm from Gimoy, which is Cairns in North Queensland. Great. And what do you do with your time? Well, I've been very busy with the court case in Alice Springs, the closed Pine Gap court case of the Peace Pilgrims. Um, I was one of those Peace Pilgrims, and uh, we went into Pine Gap to pray and to lament war and also to try and stop the drone strikes that are happening out of there. And um, the government didn't take that uh, well. What happened next? Well, the government then charged us under some old Cold War legislation. It's called the Defence Special Undertakings Act, and it means that they have some legislation which covers defence facilities around Australia, and it's got much higher penalties than ordinary old trespass. So usually if you're arrested under trespass laws, uh, well, first of all, you're given a chance to leave, and then you're, it's usually maybe $2,000 fine, something like that, uh, six months in jail maybe, but uh, very unusual. And But this has got seven years in jail and up to $50,000 in fines. So it's quite strong legislation um, and it's being used on activists. <clears throat> it's never used on anybody else. It's only ever used on peaceful, non-violent activists to um, discourage dissent, uh, to discourage people speaking out about what's going on. And, and you know, the, the government don't give us any other spaces to talk about these things. There's no other public forums in which people discuss Pine Gap, the use of Pine Gap, the joint facilities, the way the US use Pine Gap for drone strikes and assassinations, the way the CIA use it as their new form of assassination. Um, we don't get to discuss those things anywhere else. And so we went there to shine a light on it and uh, to say what is going on here and we don't agree with it. And why is Pine Gap in particular so important? Pine Gap is, is an immense signals collection. You know, after the Cold War finished, supposedly, in 1989, it was thought that it would be able to be shut down because it was it was a Cold War facility for, for picking up signals uh, of Russia in terms of nuclear war. It was supposed to pick up, were the Russians going to start a nuclear war? Were they firing a ballistic missile? It was supposed to pick up that sort of things. Well, instead of shutting down, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's massive now. It's got more than 30 antennas, including huge antennas that collect almost everything that we do every day. Um, and it's got other antennas that, that still check out for a supposed nuclear war. But, you know, as we know, the U.S. is the greatest 
um, proliferator of nuclear weapons and the proliferator of nuclear war. It's always upscaling. Um, it's always um, adding to its collection. It's always trying new technologies. And, um, you know, there's no peacemaking or peaceful purpose at Pine Gap any, anymore. And in fact, it's always been run by the CIA because it was a spy spying facility. And the CIA still have somebody in charge there. And, you know, the CIA was renowned for the assassination that carried out in the 60s, 70s and 80s and 90s. And usually we thought of those assassinations like, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith or one of those movies where people went out and assassinated the bad guys. Well, well now what they do is they use missiles from drones as their, mo- their latest technique in assassination. And they, they pick somebody based on some pattern of the way they make phone calls and then they fly a drone above them and then they fire a Hellfire missile down them. If that person dies, that person dies, their family dies, their friends die, whoever's in the vicinity, or maybe they get the wrong people, like, like you know, traditional assassinations. Sometimes you get the wrong person, and with the Hellfire missile, it's, it's an incredibly hot missile that burns everything so that there's, there's no evidence, you know, and that's what the CIA like, to leave nothing behind. We introduce Graham Dunstan, who travels around on the peace bus with his partner Beck Horridge, occupying public space for peace, justice and a sustaining earth. These are his thoughts on the Peace Pilgrims' trespass action. A magnificent action, getting Pine Gap notice, breaking through the denial and the lies, the government lies about what's actually happening at Pine Gap. Gasping my last breath Close by me lie the bodies of those I love This man before me must be death In green and brown he fallen the beast above My mind it screams in agony Somehow the worst pain I feel burns in my heart Tears bring flooding memories Our lives of simple joy now shattered apart And I thought, why do they come here? These demons of hell Death serving angels I fear they were summoned by an evil spell what have we done to deserve a horror such as this? As I beg Allah for the answer, I'm greeted by death's kiss. Here's a look at some of the historical links between the environment and peace movements. And let, let's see the, the odd history of this. Is an, I'm a child of, you know, a student in the 60s, and we're up in arms against conscription. Up in arms. Soldiers. It's the wrong metaphor. We're organising um, in the streets, mass rallies, um, to end the Vietnam War and end conscription for that war. Um, and uh, it was huge. I mean... Big rallies, the moratoriums in 1971 were the concluding momentum. But you've got to remember, in the beginning, um, so in 1966, Lyndon Baines Johnson came to Sydney to support the Liberals uh, in their run for government. Um, Menzies had resigned. Um, what was the guy who drowned? I can't remember. Holt. Holt. Holt was now running you know, his first campaign for a Prime Minister. And... Um, wasn't he famous for saying, all the way with LBJ? That was the election campaign. That was the central tenet of what they were proposing. And Lyndon Baines Johnson, the first president ever, came to Sydney to seal that arrangement. It was huge. I mean, 
maybe 100,000 people turned out for it. There were free trains to bring in um, people from outbacks, uh, chairs for pensioners all around through the route of the, the city. And I was one of the protesters at that time, student protesters, who stopped the procession. We got under the, the motorcade and um, stopped so that after us, you know, it was held up. People kept running and getting back under them and dragged away. So it was held up. and They were determined they weren't going to be stopped again. They had a, a date at the uh, state dinner at the, um, the, the Art Gallery of New South Wales. So they drove through Sydney at high speed after that. So all these people who came in waving all the way with LBJ, he just flashed past. The government won the election in a landslide. You know, on this that process. So that was 1966. By 1972, just six years later, they're in abject retreat. The Liberals actually began the withdrawal from Vietnam. Whitlam, who was elected in, in November 72, is credited with it, but it was so bad for them that even the Liberals realised they had to get out of their war and end conscription. And we, the student protesters, had won the day. No question. I mean, we had the support, of course, from the old left, the traditional left, you know, to build the, the foundation. But it was the anti-conscription movement that had the mass appeal that completely turned the government on its head uh, and got us out of those. So we, we at the time were celebrating, thinking that's the end of conscription forever. We'll never have another foreign adventure. Um, Little did we think that the government would professionalise the army, wouldn't need conscription. They'd just spend big bucks, big taxes to send off, send off for future generations. Now, at that time, begins the environment movement as we know it today. Rachel Carson's uh, Silent Spring had been published and suddenly we were aware that the skies of Sydney were brown, right, from nitrous oxide from the fuels, you know. So there was a big effort to clean up the rivers and clean up the air, um, become a priority. And also save species from extinction. So when... uh, I'm thinking about Greenpeace, founder of Greenpeace. When he was casting around for a name for this new movement, he chose Greenpeace because he wanted to direct the peace movement into green activities. That's the connection, right? And now we've gone full circle where we need to, hey, claw back from the green back into the peace movement. Back to Margaret Pistorius. In the environmental movement, grew out of the anti-nuclear movement. There was a point at which the anti-nuclear movement was so successful that environmentalists said, what are they doing? What can we do that's like what they've done? Well, of course, the environmentalists have now gone ahead and there are hundreds of environmentalists you know, paid to work as environments and hundreds of volunteers in Australia, thousands of volunteers. But in the peace movement, uh, war continues to expand. The use of weapons continues to expand. The dangers and the harms against our planet continue to expand. And yet, you know, we need to put some of our thinking into that space now about how we resolve conflicts in ways that don't involve nuclear war, that don't involve killing people, that don't involve the destruction of whole ecosystems and cities and and people, ordinary people like us, and poor people in the most. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. On today's show, we're looking at the recent cases that were held in the Northern Territory Supreme Court, prosecuting peace activists who walked onto the secretive Pine Gap military base. Now to the question, why should environmentalists care about the peace movement? We'll start with Felicity Ruby. Hi, I'm Felicity Ruby and I'm a peace and environmental activist, member of Friends of the Earth and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, so part of the environment and the peace Scene. I used to work around the UN for the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, the oldest women's peace organisation that goes by the acronym WILPF, and we focused quite a bit on the environmental impact of militarism and war. The peace movement has quite a bit to teach the environment movement. The military is the biggest polluter on earth. Did you know 
that every time a B-52 bomber goes into the air, that it needs to be cleaned. And it's cleaned with the equivalent CFCs to a family of five holding their fingers on bad spray cans for their entire 70-year lifespan. When I worked for Wilf, we tried to make calculations like this to quantify, to make visible and comprehensible the terrible environmental impact of the military, how much oil it uses, how much toxic material becomes bioavailable when the explosions of bombs and drones occurs, the explosive remnants of war that remain scattered throughout, the the lead of bullet casings leaching into so many places. We can all use recycled toilet paper and take personal responsibility as much as we can, but until and unless we tackle the major polluters, the major climate criminals, the root causes of environmental collapse, then we are actually just being delusional. George Bush Sr. was in office during the first UN Rio environmental talks, and his administration successfully kept the impact of militarism out of that agenda-setting event. And that meant that ever since, the UN Commission on Sustainable Development could only ever address the issue indirectly, but it did so somewhat through the agenda item of production and consumption. So Wilk focused on the production and consumption of weaponry, the production and consumption of things like depleted uranium weaponry that lives on and on and on and on, an environmental disaster for thousands of years. This um, production and consumption of weaponry is an opportunity cost for every issue. As uh, Buckminster Fuller in his famous infographic called What the World Wants and How to Pay for It showed, we need just one quarter of what is spent on the military to fix everything. Every environmental and social issue, clean water, addressing deforestation, food, clothing, housing, education, everything with one quarter. But the cost of militarism is further than that because of the long-standing nature of radioactive and extremely toxic materials that it unleashes. This is Margaret Pistorius. Well, environmentalists, well, you know, the US Army is one of the hugest users of fossil fuels, um, they are one of the hugest polluters. They leave behind them a trail of chemicals. Um, and, you know, their fossil fuels got left out of the Paris Agreement um, and it got left out of the Kyoto Agreement, the very early agreements on on the use and the reduction of fossil fuels and global warming. So they continue to grow their fossil fuels while other smaller societies have to shut down. And, and the U.S. Army is the biggest actual producer. I mean, if you can imagine the amount of fossil fuels it takes to build a missile, for example, and they, and they drop hundreds of missiles every week. Or you can imagine the amount of fossil fuels it takes to run a jet aircraft, and they run hundreds of these. Or, or, or a, a ship, but a lot of ships are nuclear-powered, of course, but they, many of them are also run on diesel. So they're, it's an enormous user of fossil fuels. Um, and of course, like all fossil fuels use, it's exponentially growing. There's no sense of the budget coming down or peaking, but the US continue to put more money every year into their military. And, you know, wherever they go, they then create devastation. I mean, a city bombed is a devastating space. You know, it's a wasteland. You're not going to have much of an ecosystem in a wasteland. Um, so there are all these social and environmental impacts of war that environmentalists need to bring their minds to. We return to Graham Dunstan. Well, it comes down to this. There will be no international agreements for the environment that will ever be binding unless we have peace. And right now, because of the actions of the USA and Israel, the United Nations has been undone. Uh, it cannot make binding international agreements anymore because Israel ignores it and the USA undermines it. Uh, recently, um, President Trump addressed the United Nations. The United Nations was created after World War II to prevent wars, make wars illegal. It had been a long ambition of the peace movement to make war illegal. He went to the United Nations and promised war against North Korea, threatened war from the podium. It's appalling. 
Next up, we have Richard Tanter, who's a Senior Research Associate at the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability and is Honorary Professor in the School of Political and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne. He is one of the preeminent experts on Pine Gap and appeared as a witness for the Peace Pilgrims in that capacity. He's also Chair of the Australian Board of ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. Well, I, well, I guess at a very general level it's very clear that one of humanity's problems is that it does not have a peaceful relationship to nature in general. Uh, and that comes, particularly those of us in the Western world with a Christian tradition, uh, I think that there is an inherent um, presumption that humans should dominate over nature and use nature for its own purposes. That's at a pretty general level, but you can see the effects very clearly. Um, I think in our area, talking about uh, nuclear weapons, I think the most important part of it is the connection between nuclear weapons and climate change. Uh, Many people are a bit taken aback by that. Uh, Back in the 1980s, uh, a group of mainly American and Swedish scientists discovered that if, in fact, there is a nuclear war in which particularly cities are burned, they will loft into the atmosphere very large amounts of carbon material. Uh, These will go up well very, very high uh, in the stratosphere, and that will gradually circle around the Earth. Now, if there are um, a large number of such explosions and burnt cities, then the amount of carbon material in the higher atmosphere will blanket the Earth and block out sunlight reaching the surface of the Earth to a greater or a lesser degree. That was called nuclear winter. Back then, the science was not primitive, but the climate models were, um, by today's standards, pretty shonky. Um, Now we have, for obvious reasons, very good climate modelling. This work has been uh, uh, conducted all over again by a a number of scientists in different teams in the United States and in Europe in particular, and the science is in. Peer-reviewed science is very clear. If we take the example of what the nuclear strategists would describe as a small nuclear war, namely, let's take the example of India and Pakistan. They've each got 100 or so nuclear weapons. Let's say they each use uh, half of their arsenals, a total of 100 nuclear weapons. Uh, India and Pakistani cities, of course, are very dense, uh, very burnable. Leaving aside the obvious uh, horrors that would uh, inflict on the people who burned alive, evaporated uh, there, um, those cities would burn and loft very large amounts of carbon material into the atmosphere. Rapidly it would transit uh, into, up into the, the, the highest levels of the atmosphere, encircling first the northern hemisphere and then the southern hemisphere within a matter of, of days. It really happens very quickly. We know this from Fukushima, for example, uh, what happened there. Um, the modelling now is very clear that the effects on the environment, particularly the humanly altered environment, particularly agriculture, uh, um, will be massive and quite rapid. And the levels of famine that are predicted on quite careful modelling of the decrease uh, in agricultural productivity are very, very clear. So that in itself is going to lead to very large numbers of deaths. To talk about the impact on the global economy is almost insane, but obviously it will have massive effects. Um, So that's one particular sequence, and that's the example of nuclear war causing abrupt climate change, very quick climate change. In that case, cooling as it happens, Uh, but there are more complex uh, effects further down. That said, even... uh, uh, a single nuclear detonation. Um, We know from the modelling that have been conducted by colleagues of mine, as it happens, uh, in the United States, uh, on the uh, biological effects, the genetic effects um, uh, on uh, animals, birds, uh, insects around Chernobyl in Ukraine and around Fukushima in Japan. Within a matter of months at Fukushima, there were observable uh, transgenerational effects, and you really didn't want to look at the slideshow there. It's pretty awful. Uh, you're certainly talking very misshapen heads, uh, uh, extra limbs, uh, grotesque deformities. Uh, these actually get larger over generations for a time. Uh, we, that's a way of saying we really don't know what effects nuclear explosions will have on the biosphere in total, except we know that it's massive. That's, so that's the nuclear story, and anyone who thinks you know, that that doesn't matter is missing the point about the environment, I think. Finally, we have former Green Senator and long-time peace activist Scott Ludlam. He was also giving evidence in the Peace Pilgrims trial. 
Well, I think we're all really all just a branch of the same movement, and there's there's plenty of different ways of of cutting it up. War is devastating on the environment. It's uh, even if just in peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of uh, of nuclear energy, and ultimately the architect um, of nuclear weapons. And what you'll find really is that a lot of things that environmental campaigners are worried about, uh, if you you don't really have to to, to think too widely or go back too far to realise that our concerns really converge. And ultimately, I think we're all part of, we're all part of the same campaign. She's up there staring at the screen Her last task of the day was plaguing her thoughts A secret base in Alice Springs so far away her job still made her destroy And she thought on who they really steer The earth's demands of hell Suspected terrorists, their guilt is clear The God can we truly tell This power we possess Deep down inside I condemn but I have family back on in the U.S., so I'll say I'm protecting them. That was Scott Ludlam, former Green Senator and longtime peace activist. I'm Corey Green, and you're listening to Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories. On today's show, we're looking at the recent cases that were held in the Northern Territory Supreme Court, prosecuting peace activists who walked onto the secretive Pine Gap military base. Next, I wanted to explore whether environmental issues could be a cause of war. Richard Tanter addresses this question. Yes, they can. Uh, there are uh, a number of... There's a lot of arguments now about climate change and, uh, and, and conflict. It's actually a tricky area. Usually it's a bit simplistic, the way it's modelled. But certainly we know, um, to take a very minor example uh, in, in sense of scale... Uh, one of the key factors in the conflict between Israel and Palestine is the Israeli domination of the Jordan Valleys as a water system and the systematic deprivation of Palestinian Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank from proper access to this. And it's an immediate source of conflict. Certainly in the Nile, there are, um, uh, there's great difficulty uh, involving Sudan, Ethiopia and Egypt over um, who gets what of that, how much of that water. There are, I think, lots of other examples out there. Um, the thing about climate, the climate change part of it is it's usually said, even American and Australian military will recognise this, uh, climate change is often described as a threat multiplier. You've got a problem and then you stress the environment through climate change, you'll get more. I think it's actually much more complicated than that. Um, the environment is... It's not, as, it's not as if the environment and the economy are two separate things. They're actually different aspects of the same thing. And uh, uh, we can see on, on energy, on um, immediately evident environmental conflicts, and then more removed conflicts, if you like, more basic ones. Uh, these, uh, the environment is a key part, uh, both as cause and effect and mediator, in a great many conflicts around the world today. This is Graham Dunstan. Well, last year, uh, Arthur Abbott had to, you know, was overthrown, kicked out, and his opposition opposition to, um, you know, the, any concept of global warming was removed from the parliament. There was a, a meeting, a, you know, a forum called by, you know. I forget the name of the environment, which was defunded by Abbott, and they made one last effort, on the military and climate change. And it was kind of, it was considered important because this was the first acknowledgement by the Australian military that climate change was a defence issue. Yeah? But what, they, what were they talking about in the end? Right? They were talking about uh, the need for guns in the event of mass population movements, right? <laughs> I would think, you know, we'd be organising uh, 
we'd have the need for um, rescue ships <laughs> rather than, rather than um, border protection. I don't think border protection is the issue. But what was most appalling about that, that particular episode, was that the US general, it was a US general, a British general, an Australian general, sitting up at the, at the forum. The US general had, was famous for, you know, in, in the US for introducing climate change as an issue. And he quoted at length a piece of propaganda about the war in Syria having been created by climate change. Yeah. Now, I've been tracking this <laughs> because it, it came through Facebook with a comic, beautifully drawn comic, explaining what had happened and how uh, there had been the, the, um, the socialist Syrian government had tried to up food production in Syria, overstrained the land. Uh, there had been, you know, it was like what the collective farming or something, you know, it was the implication of it. Uh, there'd been a drought. Um, all these farmers had to leave the land and come into the cities where they became radicalised and took on the government. Now, there's a seed of truth in that. There was a famine, and, and people were displaced by the famine and they came to the cities. And sure, the places where they were displaced, because these are properly educated peasants, um, came to the town, and they were certainly ripe propaganda about the, the war and some of those areas that they occupied um, did become um, anti-Assad um, centres but the cause of the, the war in Syria 99% US regime chain policies right? it was the US who trained the rebels, it was the US who supplied them with weapons in Saudi, or through Saudi Arabia, and thing, ninety-nine percent. And this guy couldn't even acknowledge that. You know, now you think about it. So think about the climate change disasters we've had so far. They're, you know, they're usually measured in floods and fire, and ferocious storms. When these events have happened in Australia in recent times, they have been followed by a mighty uprising of goodwill amongst the citizens who go to help. Um, the floods in Brisbane. Remember, Rudd was seen, you know, spilling sandbags or something, digging rubbish. Or something, you know. That's what happens when we have a, a civil catastrophe like that. People come out and help each other, and it's enormously affirming um, for the culture. So, we, do we need armies to face climate change disasters? I don't think so. I think we need enhanced emergency services you know, with resources to deal with um, people who are displaced by the disasters, you know, settle them peacefully and productively somewhere, not take them to Manus <laughs> or Nauru and abandon them there. So, yes, the, the premise is right um, in the sense that climate change is... Um, placing new demands on um, services, but we don't need guns for this. I asked Scott Ludlam whether the Australian Defence Force was taking this seriously. Um, I think there are definitely people within the ADF who would like to be taking it more seriously, but their voices tend to be drowned out by the political layer. So by the government, that is really insistent on um, positioning the Australian Defence Force not for defence and not really for disaster relief. But the major procurement decisions and purchases in the last 10 or 15 years and certainly what's been foreshadowed is, um, is that the Defence Force is there basically to just roll in behind the United States in every one of their insane misadventures, you know, up to and including on the Korean Peninsula. So I think there are some pretty really good thinkers inside the Defence Force and kind of on the periphery of the defence establishment who recognise that climate change is the biggest single security threat um, that's, can, that's sweeping down on us in this century and that if we get it wrong, uh, it's going to have devastating effects. But at the moment, those voices are largely drowned out by those who are really still fighting the wars of the 20th century. The wars of the 20th century were if you put it in a sort of a, a simplified way, um, about oil. Why do you think people were still fighting over oil reserves when we all knew about the risk of global warming? 
I think the question of oil is the clearest example of how people in the environment movement and the peace movement are working opposite ends of the same problem. So oil and gas extraction being a really significant contributor to global warming and also a significant contributor to global and regional instability and violence. So for me it really hit home uh, when I, I read a couple of years back that um, ice melt in the northern um, summer meant that oil exploration vessels were going to be able to go out into the Arctic Sea for the first time ever and drill for oil. And that, for me, really exposed the kind of suicidal nature of industrial capitalism, that you had oil companies happy to acknowledge that global warming was melting the North Polar ice cap and that that was giving them access to go and drill for more of the stuff that was causing it, and that they were backed by governments... Um, in, in Russia and in the United States and in Europe. And so we've got this situation, I suppose, where the peace movement and environmental campaigners could sit down and say, uh, the engineers and the people who are designing electric cars and the electrification of, of the transport task may indeed solve two of our problems at the same time, and we should be supporting them even as we work our own campaigns. I think the internal combustion engine in this century is facing a form of extinction at the hands of really... Uh, cheap, ubiquitous electric vehicles, public transport and, and private transport, uh, which would bring the oil age to an end. We're not going to need this stuff for too much longer. Um, and so I suppose for me it's, kind of, it's something of a unifying campaign, but it also exposes just how savagely in hoc our politicians are to big industrial interests. Uh, you know, there's, there's probably not going to be a better example of that than the way that the oil and gas industry has contaminated politics here in Australia and elsewhere. Uh, so if we're going to be talking about um, electric cars, this actually brings up the issue of uh, lithium for me. Now, Western Australia, where you're from, is is full of lithium. And and I remember that the images um, from a couple of years ago where they were clearing the homelands and, you know, the Aboriginal homelands and they, you know, they were clearing people off with, with police horses. And it, and it was just such a, a reflection of the you know, classic invasion images and, and uh, you know, a continuation of the invasion over, you know, some sceptical people might say resources. Could you talk to that? I don't think you'd have to be sceptical. I mean, yeah, it's a resource grab like any other. Um, I think both for reasons of resource extraction but also for urban form. If anything, I'm more excited about the potential of electrifying freight and public transport than about private electric cars. Um, if we were to give everybody a Tesla, we would still find our cities choked with congestion and, you know, you still got these really highly dispersed cities which are terrible for, for building communities. So I think, if anything, rather than continuing the privatisation of transport, looking at unwinding that uh, and having a much smaller number of more extensive public transport vehicles is still going to be the way to provide for mobility um, as well as just changing patterns of urban form. And I guess like any green technology, um, electric cars or photovoltaic panels being the other one, uh, we've got to look at the whole life cycle of the product. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's no recycling path for lithium battery any, any more than there is for, uh, for solar photovoltaics. All the solar panels up on roofs, which are, you know, in my view, a really good news story. They're all made of virgin materials. There's no recycling path for them. And so I think the next step for people working up these technologies the next generation is making sure that they're closed loop, that there's a recycling pathway um, and a dismantling pathway for all these technologies so that eventually we can, and sooner rather than later, get off the resource extraction treadmill. And, you know, green technologies aren't immune uh, to those demands any more than anything else. Margaret Pistorius takes up the topic of frontier wars. Rise up. Melbourne people, rise up everyone around Australia and start to think about war. And remember, it's the frontier wars that underpin Australian war. And unless we, we, make, we can organise local frontier wars in our uh, remembrances in our own communities with local people that we have relationships with, Aboriginal people that we have relationships with. And once we do that, you'll be transformed to be able to think about war. One of the reasons we can't think about war is that, um, you know, this country was built by war, on war. There were 10-year wars rolled out across the whole country over 100 years. And we don't think about that. We were taught to deny that as the um, 
uh, climate denialist potato told us this week, you know, colonisation is based on denial. It never happened. And, and until we, we uncover that denial and go, yep, the frontier wars happened, they were real things, they had all the elements of war, uh, we need to remember them with the local people that we live alongside, um, then we'll start to be able to think about war and we'll be able to see how it's devastating to our planet, the environment and people. Slowly through the body Step short upon the side of a dying child A vein inside him came with tears Still more innocence read the report he filed And he thought, why don't we send them here These demons of hell True heroes are what they cheer And I used to believe it as well But no amount of lies they say Can take my guilt and shame And no God to whom I pray Will justify this pain No God to whom I pray My next question was whether a military mindset could be an impediment to global environmental agreements. Yeah, I think that's I think that's definitely one way of putting it. A military mindset says we solve problems with violence as our first resort rather than our last. And Australia has been locked into that mindset, really at the heels of our ally the United States, for decades. I think in the US, <coughs> the UK and Australia, we are becoming uh, exporters of security services. Almost the only thing the US exports now is some types of ex- you know, security services. And this is a particular way of thinking about the world that involves you know, incarceration, uh, power over and uh, control. And I think that sort of military mindset where you... See you can solve things through power and might and, res- and, and by having other people's resources, control of other people's resources. Of course, that's, that's central to why um, the planet suffers in the way that the planet suffers. And, and we can see that in, in many, many different places. And, and mostly, you know, wherever you get um, a new colonial frontier, any new colonial frontier is backed by the use of the military. And then that colonial frontier, the, the purpose of that colonial frontier is to take what you can as quickly as a po- possible according to the needs of capital. And then this has no <clears throat> reference to ecosystems, human flourishing, the flourishing of the planet. And this is where we have time and time again... Um, devastation of communities, ecosystems, places that we love. That was Margaret Pistorius, who was recently a defendant in the Northern Territory Supreme Court for her peace activism. In one of the actions, she and four others trespassed onto the Pine Gap military base and performed a lament. They were all found guilty. They have considerable fines to pay. If you'd like to help out in any way, you can go to closepinegap.org. Also on the show, we had Pine Gap expert Richard Tanter, former Senator Scott Ludlam, and long-time peace and environmental activists Felicity Ruby and Graham Dunstan. If you missed some of today's show, don't forget that our podcast can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. 
Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous financial support and the dedicated people at the Community Radio Network for getting this program out to you. Earth Matters was produced in the studios at 3CR Radio in Fitzroy, Victoria on the Kulin Nation. Our contact phone is 03-9419-8377 and our email is earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for today, but we'll be back again next week. The song that you heard throughout this show was the musical lament that the Peace Pilgrims performed at Pine Gap. It's called Demons of Hell, and here it is being performed by Franz Dowling and Margaret Pistorius at an action on Anzac Hill in Alice Springs that coincided with their court date. Grasping my last breath Close by me lie the bodies of those I love This man before me must be death In green and brown he followed the beast above My mind it screams in agony Somehow the worst pain I feel burns in my heart The tears bring flooding memories Lives of simple joy now shattered apart And I thought, why don't they come here These demons of hell Death servant angels I fear they were summoned by an evil spell What have we done to deserve Horror such as this As I beg Allah for the answer I'm greeted by death's kiss Staring at the screen Her last task of the day was plaguing her thoughts A secret base in Alice Springs 
So far away her job still made her distraught And she thought on who they really steer The earth's demands of hell Suspected terrorists, their guilt is clear The God can we truly tell this power we possess Deep down inside I condemn But I have family back home in the US So I'll say I'm protecting them Slowly through the bodies Stop short upon the side of a dying child A vein inside him came with tears Still no innocence read the report he filed And he thought, why don't we send them here These demands of hell True heroes are what they cheer And I used to believe it as well But no amount of lies they say Can take my guilt and shame And no God to whom I pray Will justify this pain No God to whom I pray Justify this pain Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to 3cr.org.au.